When I'm worried and I can't sleep, I count my blessings. Welcome to Smiling Homeschooler Podcast. My name is Ben Wilson, and tonight we have a special Christmas episode for you. My dad Todd has a new Christmas story to share with you that your whole family will enjoy. But before we begin, we also want to thank our sponsor, Teaching Textbooks. They are the math curriculum that helps homeschoolers smile. But let's get going. Here's my dad, Todd Wilson. Okay, well, um, it's been kind of a weird day uh, just because uh, you haven't really given the news, Ben. Can you go ahead and tell us the news? I mean, I wasn't planning on it, but I guess so that uh, we are expecting number three. Hopefully, Rissa doesn't mind that since we hadn't posted on Facebook or anything yet. But uh, Oh, I thought, you already, I thought you told people. Uh, we had told family and some close friends, so hopefully no uh, one listens I've already to this told- then. <laughs> all the people on our Christmas card list, and we'll probably okay. make it public. Well, so it's cool. public now. But, yeah, so but we're expecting number lesson. three, and she's been violently sick the last couple days and was last week as well. So uh, mom and dad were helping with the kids today, which was really, really helpful. So I don't know what we would have done. <laughs> it would have been rough. So. Reason number 47 why you should live, your kids should live next to you. Yeah, I don't even exactly. know. I mean, I just think we were stupid as married people. We should have, we really picked the wrong place to live. Um, That's wonderful. uh, So we're, but we had a good night tonight. Uh, We were with the kids all day and it was so much fun. And uh, uh, I was just, before they came over, I was looking at some of your posts and, you know, moms, you still, some of you just need to stop. You cannot stop yourself for some reason. You feel like you have to do just a little bit of school to make it, um, uh, whatever, make it count. You know, you don't have to go ahead and stop completely. You don't have to do the little read alouds. You don't have to do, you know, a lesson of math. Don't do anything. Just let your kids play and you enjoy this time because this time is so fleeting. Well, you will notice that my little setup is a little different. I got a little Christmas tree here in the back. Uh, the lights are dimmed down and you can see the very glowing <laughs> eyes in my glasses, my computer. Um, I'm sorry, you know, we spend what about four minutes in our lighting scheme of this, so <laughs> it's not like we're working real hard at it. So, um, but I thought uh, maybe we'd uh, just this be like a Christmas party, um, without desserts, you know, and this is kind of like one of our advent nights. In fact, um, we're gonna read a story, I'm gonna read a story that maybe you can share with your family. Um, they can gather around, maybe not the computer or Facebook, but they can. Listen to it on the audio tomorrow um, when Ben makes it available as a podcast, or you can listen to it here. Um, but it's just a fun story that that we did this week or last week on our Advent night as we were getting ready. You know, we were just a week away. Now we're just a few days away. Um, but I thought I'd read a story. This uh, you you can get our stories, uh, the Family Man's Christmas Treasury. This is not one of the stories. The story has only been told to about whatever eight people who were in my house uh, last Wednesday night. Um, but I'm going to read a story called Dickens Ghosts. Nice. And I hope you enjoy it. So this is Ben's first hearing. Yeah, um, you've been talking ben, about this we'll one for a while. That's cool. If ben, feel free to uh, make any sound effects yes. in the background. I'll be taking notes to. as well for critiquing afterwards. Okay. Okay, ready? Let's begin. Okay, get a cozy seat. You know, get your little latte and, you know, dim the lights over by the the uh, 
Christmas tree. Let's begin. Dickens' Ghost by Todd Wilson. The story you're about to hear begins with a dream. Although to young Charles Dickens, who was the one dreaming, it was as real as you or me. It felt dark, lonely, damp, like most of his recent dreams. And then it came, a ghostly whisper like a cold wind leaving him exposed, chilling, haunting, familiar, an enveloping reek of death, decay, dampness, always dampness, whispering to him from the grave. Charles. He sat bolt upright at the sound of his name, breathing hard, his eyes wide with terror, searching the corners of the dark room for the caller. Maybe this time he would see him retreating into the cracks or dissolving into the shadows. Charles, are you all right? A sleepy voice asked. Yes, fine, my dear, he answered, his half-awake wife trying to reassure himself as much as her. She seemed hardly aware that he was there. I, I may write a bit. No, not too, not too late, my love. No, not too late, he answered, knowing she had drifted off. Smoothing the long tussle of his hair from his eyes, he slipped from his bed and into his dressing gown and bed shoes that stood beside the bed. Lifting the candle from the nightstand, he walked slightly to the hearth to light it. Accompanied by the bobbing shadows and the soft scuffle from his slippers, he made his way to the little room he called his writing place. The darkness and time of night heightened the squeak of his chair as he set his weight down. He hesitated, hoping that none of the children had heard the sound. Wetting his middle finger with the tip of his tongue, he pulled a crisp white sheet of paper from a neat stack and placed it in front of him, knowing that a story was about to begin. As he had 10,000 times before, he dipped his pen into the inkwell, let it drip before lifting it above the paper, and paused, recalling the dream. Then, in a simple script, he penned, Marley was dead to begin with. So you mean to write it then, the portly man huffed as they pushed their way through the crowded streets. Yes, I do, John, I must. There are evils to confront, and I've waited too long to do so. And this is the season to strike the first blow. And besides, he added with a knowing smirk, we both know that I could use the money. You know there will be some who may not like what you have to say, the portly man said, wiping the corner of his mouth with his gloved hands. Oh, I've thought about it many times, and maybe that's why I've put it off this long but I will put it off no longer. With that, the writer turned abruptly to face his editor, stopping him with an open hand. Do you have any idea what it's like, he, he hissed. His words bit and startled the editor. The confronted man felt uncomfortable and conspicuous like a child being scolded by his parents in public market, but it was the sadness and anger in Dickens' eyes that held his attention. Oh, I, I've had angry readers before, he answered in defense of his accuser. I'm not talking about angry readers, John. I'm talking about watching them drag your father away to debtor's prison, crying and begging them to bring him back, wondering every day afterwards if he'll ever return or when they may, might come from your mum next. The scene played out before his eyes, one that the years had not erased. His gaze left the editor and examined his upright hand. Do you know what it's like to live with hands blackened by coal dust? To spend each day in a place that reeks of filth and despair, hidden behind words of wealth, progress, and success. In your loneliness, you're not alone. You're surrounded by dozens of children with coal black hands whose fathers and hope have been snatched from their hearts and whose childhoods have been stolen and hopes dashed on the jagged realization that the only escape is death. I may have escaped the squalor and poverty, but I remember it well. And it must end. His voice quaked with anger. 
I may not be able to do much, but I can, and I will do something. Well, then, the editor said, adjusting the brim of his hat nervously, so be it. Tell me, pray, what did you have in mind? And I do hope that there might be some profit in this rebellion of yours. The brash young man relaxed and smiled at his words. A carol, he said, straightening the small flower in his publisher's lapel buttonhole. More precisely, a Christmas carol, a ghost story of sorts. Writing was inaccurate in describing what occupied Dickens in his little room. Yes, it involved pen and ink and words, scrawls and scratches. But for the author of this carol, the words seemed to appear on the paper. Almost unaware that the words on the page were from his hand, he saw not scripted words, but a miserly old man as thin as a wisp with a heart of ice from decades of self-absorption and greed. He followed Dickens, although he knew not his name. The old man appeared on every corner, at every place of business, in every coach, pub, street, and alleyway. Just that morning on his way home, he saw him in the old town through a shop window, hunched over his musty ledgers, alone. Minutes later, he passed him on the street as, as the lights were being lit, hunched and walking in the shadows. That prune of a man with a heart as cold and deep as the grave waded through waters of poverty and want, blind and deaf to the people who needed the most. What is his name, he would ask out loud in agitation. It was an odd question coming from a man who had named hundreds of people in his stories. They always came so easy. But this man withheld it from him, withheld it from him as he withheld a half-shilling raise from his starving clerk who worked al alongside him in his rotting counting house. How about Ichabod, his editor offered. Ichabod? His name is no more Ichabod than it is John, Fanny, or Methuselah. He tossed a book across the room in madness, sending two clerks and a copy boy scurrying from the room. And then when he thought he might never discover the miserly man's name, it happened. It was early October and the air was crisp. As was his custom, Dickens, armed with his favorite walking stick, set off a, on a walk, not through the countryside or in a quaint hamlet, but through the worst part of the old city. It was dirty, squalid, and depths, and its depths were avoided if they could. The places made his skin wobble and pulse quicken, but Charles found himself drawn to those cesspools, like those who are terrified of heights or pulled towards the edge of a cliff or a railing. He was quite the sight to all who saw him strutting down the dirty streets in his flamboyant outfit. No wonder some called him the little peacock behind his back. On that evening, he found himself walking through the rusty gates of a churchyard filled with tombs and ancient headstones. Truth be known, he was fascinated by churchyards and imagined the forgotten tales that each stone and name represented and felt compelled, almost against his will, by fear and terror to walk among them. Perhaps the fear that gnawed at him most was that, his, that he one day would be laid among the forgotten souls, only to be marked by a stone with his name and the date of departure. It was in this very graveyard that Dickens spotted a large headstone marked Ebenezer Lennox Scroggy. The cruel epitaph below the name caught his eye and it read, Mean Man, or so he thought in the fading light. But on closer inspection, he found it actually read, Meal Man the cemetery occupant, being a corn merchant. He smiled in amusement as he wrote the full name on a scrap of paper and thought to himself that it must have shriveled Scroggy's soul to carry out such a terrible thing to eternity. And so the miserable old miser's name who haunted him in his waking hours and in his dreams was named Scrooge. I'm sorry, Mr. Leach, Dickens said to the illustrator, but that is not what Scrooge looks like. 
That is what you described, Mr. Dickens. Besides, it's too late if you want to get them to press on time. A new set of drawings would take too long to draw and carve. We just don't have the time. The truth be told, John Leach was quite capable of producing artwork and wood carvings at a tremendous rate of speed, but he grew tired of trying to please an unpleasable man. The drawings will remain as is. Dickens sighed, knowing that he didn't have the capital to insist that the drawing be redone. This was his project. He would pay the printers, and this time John Leach would win. Very well, he said, dejected, holding the proof in his hands. Leave it as is. The illustrator smiled, relieved, and somewhat elated to have beaten the little dictator. In Dickens' eyes, the drawings in his hands was comical. A thin man with an overly long nose dressed in nightgown and slippers. He looked more like a political caricature of an unpopular prime minister. Years later, others would come closer but the world's first look at Ebenezer Scrooge would be wrong. Tiny Tim, on the other hand, brought a smile to the writer's face. The youngest of Bob Cratchit's children seemed to turn his illustrated head toward his creator, and the two held gazes as loving, loving as any parent and child might have done. Charles loved Tiny Tim from the moment he met him on the street corner near his home. Penny for the cripple, he asked, holding out his ragged mittened hand. The busy writer was deep in thought and very nearly bowled over the young boy who learned, leaned heavily on a wooden crutch. The boy's face, hands, and clothes were filthy, in contrast to his own immaculately laundered and richly layered clothes. Dickens loved clothes and strolled for all to enjoy and gaze upon. Normally Dickens would have brushed past the boy and the hundreds like him that filled the streets, but this child captured him with his eyes. They were as clear and gray as a winter sky and filled with joy and peace, which was almost inconceivable to one like Dickens, who knew firsthand the squalor and hunger that he must have lived in from birth. Seldom did he do what he was about to do. Dickens reached in his waist pocket and felt three coins with his fingertips. He jingled them slightly and clenched the coins, letting two of them slip through his fingers. The single coin he produced and dropped into the mittened hand, careful to avoid contact. Captivated by the boy, he was repulsed at the thought that the sickly child might contaminate him, summoning distant memories or whisking him away from the opulent dream he presently lived in to the places of his childhood. Thank you, Governor, the child said kindly. God bless you for your kindness. Dickens involuntarily examined his hand to make sure it was clean and then walked away. But ten paces away, turned to see the cripple boy raise his hand to another passerby. Five minutes later, Dickens opened the door to his home on Doughty Street and was greeted by his wife, Catherine, who looked untouched and unconcerned by the world the cripple boy lived. How is your day, dear? She asked, as so many other dutiful wives were doing at that very moment all across London. Fine, fine, he answered, hanging his cape and hat on pegs near the door. That's good, my love, she responded, never questioning if it were so. Charles was about to mention the little cripple boy on the corner when he was interrupted by two of his own sons. Father, Charles Jr., or <laughs> Father, Charles Jr. asked, I desperately want the mechanical toy horse down in Pringle's store win window for Christmas, but Mother says it's too expensive for someone of our means. You said we were quite wealthy indeed, and I know a boy in school who lives in a home not nearly as nice as ours, and I want a cricket bat, and a, his younger brother, Walter, screamed, It's not fair if Charlie gets a mechanical horse, and I only get a cricket bat. I'm older, and my gifts cost more. Charles felt his head tighten and his wrath about to explode when his wife said, My dear, I need to know who you'd like to invite to the party next week. The porters were asking if we were, if we're having our All Hallowed Eve party, and so are the Crumblies. 
If we expect them to come, we need to have the invitation out. No invitations out no later than next week. You know how Mrs. Dilbert gets if she doesn't have sufficient time for marketing and planning, and the cakes need to be. Her voice and those of his, his children faded away as he gazed out the window, hoping to catch a glimpse of the boy with a crutch. What, what must his home be like tonight, he muttered to himself. It would be cold, damp, and the table bare. His father would not be home for several hours. Dickens pictured a clerk in a dark office, bundled for warmth, struggling day after day, month after month, year after year, for a paltry sum of fifteen shillings a week. The unforgettable look on the small boy's face assured Charles that his home must be filled with love, the overflowing, contented kind that evaded him throughout his life, the kind of love that cannot be bought, sold, or bartered for, the kind that is nourished and cultivated by two people who adore each other, which then overflows into those they raise. You wouldn't have guessed it from the way Dickens carried himself in his absurd arrogance and self-assurance. But the young writer, husband, and father longed for that love, and yet never considered it obtainable with his own wife or children. For three or four weeks, Dickens found the crippled boy on the same corner near his house, the same mittened hand, the same look in his eyes. Most often he would skirt the corner to avoid giving the boy uh, a giving to the boy, but his eyes watched him interact with the passerbys. Then one night he wasn't there. Pulling the watch from his pocket, he checked to make sure it was the correct time of evening, and it was. The street corner looked lonely without the child. He considered the reasons for his absence and walked quickly, leaving the fear fear uh, behind him as un- uh, <laughs> I'll just skip that sentence. Uh, the next day, Dickens left a few minutes early and walked a little qu- quicker as though he was meeting a client for business. A block away, he walked on his toes to see over the heads and bodies. Not there, but maybe it was just hidden from view. By the time he reached the corner, it was obvious that his tiny friend was nowhere to be seen. Charles stopped and waited, hoping to hear the sound of the boy's crutch strike the ground with a wooden click. But after ten minutes of anxiousness, it never came. Come on, where are you? he asked himself. The next day was the same as was the next week. In fact, Charles never saw the boy again, but was haunted by his image and the thought that he might have very well died. Died because I gave him one coin instead of three, he lamented, because I cared more about my own means than the means of a crippled child. Sitting in comfort at his writing place, he envisioned the meager home of the heartbroken family, a father, mother, and siblings, a small crutch carefully preserved by the fire, a painful reminder of a precious child that was stolen away. Dickens remembered his own father's boots left in a corner after he was taken away to debtor's prison. As a young boy, Dickens would secretly touch the worn leather just to recall his father. Later, he shared the story of his tiny, crippled boy with his editor. Oh, come, Charles. You can't be responsible for every child who dies in the city, the man said, attempting to comfort his brooding friend. You have children of your own and have much business to attend to. Business? The grieving writer responded, jolted from his grief by the icy words. That little child was my business. All who suffered his fate are my business. As I see it, mankind is my business. What I do in my little writing desk and in this publishing office and are just a drop in the comprehensive ocean of my business. We pass them daily. They go unnoticed like the birds and rats in the street. Their names are unknown to all except their heart-stricken families. They live and die and we go on. People look at me in all my finery point and whisper, Oh, there goes Mr. Dickens. Isn't that Charles Dickens, the writer? Maybe in the sight of God, one crippled child is worth more than millions like me. It was the same haunting nightmare, night after night. It began with the hollow sound of dripping water and a ghostly chill. 
the crippled boy with the crutch, his father being drugged off, dragged off by the authorities, an old man consumed by his wealth, death, and suffocating darkness, and then the otherworldly whisper, Charles. Each time he would wake wet from exhaustion and fright. The dreams came so often that his wife no longer stirred in, stirred in the midst of her own dreams of unrequited love. Sometimes he would rise and make his way to the writing place, and other times he would lay in bed shivering under the covers, hoping the caller would not materialize. It was at those times when he thought about the past, his past, the present, and most terrifying of all, the future, because Charles Dickens feared them all. He spent an entire life trying to escape them, but he felt as though his dreams, both sleeping and waking, carried him away to those times and places. He felt cursed by the inability to live a normal life, to leave the past behind and the future alone. He tried to appease his thoughts by staying busy, writing, traveling. But at night, always at night, in the twilight, the ghosts would visit him and whisk him away to the places in his childhood that he, that he could not escape. He did find comfort in the Cratchit home as they played a game, sung an old hymn, or sat around the table. Their laughter rang in his ears, and he envied them as though watching through the panes of window glass. He could see them, move among them, but he was invisible and undetected by them. Then he would see the crutch sitting near the fire, and the vision would vanish, leaving him alone in the room, his wife quietly breathing beside him. As quickly as it ended, a new vision replaced it, and he found himself alone in a graveyard, not unlike the many he frequented. Before him, a plain stone marked Charles Dickens. There were no flowers, no footprints in the snow of mourners whose hearts were broken, just the stone, just the lonely sound of dripping water. Charles stood there mesmerized by the stone, the name and the deep dread that filled his heart. Death was near, his heart beating in his nightshirt. And then he felt a slight touch in his, at his hand and looked down to see Tiny Tim. The boy looked up and their eyes met. His mittened hand stayed at his side and Charles noticed he stood without a crutch. He lives, Charles thought. Tiny Tim lives. Come bless you, the young boy said, slipping his hand from Charles. God bless us, everyone. And then like a bird flitting from a branch, the little boy skipped away in the happiness and joy. There's hope for old Scrooge, he thought. Hope for me. Have you seen the numbers? The publisher gushed as Charles walked through the door. An icy, cold wind pushed him through. What? It's freezing out in the street. Your ghost story is flying off the shelves, the publisher said. The industrials may not like it, but the people do. Why, just today, a bookseller stopped me in the club and begged for more copies. Begged! Charles was still warming, warming himself. I'm sorry, John, but what are you talking about? Charles, your carol's a smashing success. We've got the presses rolling right now, printing the next run. You have struck a chord with the people of London, and I have no doubt that it will do the same with the world. They're already talking about public readings and tours. It's amazing, sim amazing simply amazing. Charles Dickens looked at his friend and and publisher in amazement, and yet had no idea of what he had begun. People all over the world and for generations to come would shiver in the presence of Jacob Marley, laugh at old Fezziwig, cheer that Tiny Tim lived, and hope that the transformation in Scrooge could take place in them and others. The ghost that haunted Dickens his entire life might never leave, but somehow the hope he had written about had cast light upon them and diminished their power, ensuring that others might not have to endure their haunting. The Christmas cheer and celebration we now enjoy can be attributed to Charles Dickens and his ghost story. And as Tiny Tim was wont to say, God bless us, 
every one. The end. Well, there you go. That's the first time it's ever been read. Actually, beyond my family, you're the first to hear it. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, I know Ben has some other words to say. Uh, moms, I hope you have a great Christmas uh, uh, weekend and then that you continue to take it easy all the way through the new year. Um, we hope to be with you next week and maybe we can talk about the best of 2020, which should only take about three minutes. Um, maybe we can talk about some highlights and uh, low lights and all the lights in between. Have a great Christmas. You have so much to be thankful for, uh, for homeschooling, for your family, and for those around you. Um, but whatever you do, don't forget to smile. Merry Christmas, everybody. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed this Christmas story. If you would like more, head on over to the smilinghomeschooler.com store and go to the Christmas tab. Also, we want to thank Teaching Textbooks for sponsoring this Mind Homeschooler. They just released the newest 4.0 version of the curriculum, which includes a ton of new features, including new animations, grade dating, search features, and an interactive sketchboard. For a free demo, go to teachingtextbooks.com. Merry Christmas from our family to yours, and don't forget to smile. Yes, the happiest. The happiest. We wish you the happiest.